If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Don't worry, Kelvin, I'm turning it on now. Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> the first announcement that uh, Tom uh, gave, let me add to that, with emotion, no. Um, that is, uh, number one, I'm a real big fan of your kids running around. So I think it's great. Jim, outside, so yeah, you don't want them mowing down older people. And uh, don't ask us where they are. But uh, yeah, so don't think it's a, uh, uh, an announcement to subtly tell you not to have your kids running around. It's the great memory of little kids in church running around with each other or their friends afterwards and in between and everything else. So uh, just keep that in mind. It's all good. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful. You are good to us. You are very good to us. And we thank you. Father, we gather here today because of Christ and because of what he's done for us, because of who you are. Fathers, your created beings, those who've been created in the image of God, we come here, Father, rejoicing because you have saved us from our sin. And Father, we desire to give you honor and respect and, and gratefulness because of all that you've given us, which includes the life we have now and the life to come. We pray, Lord, as we spend time together in prayer, as we hear your word being read, as we have confessed our sins together, as we have given of our resources, we ask, Father, for your blessing on all of these things. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened. And now, Father, as we continue to worship and as we turn our attention more specifically to what is being said here in the book of Matthew, Father, we ask that you would help us to think through these things, to look more deeply into those things that you have preserved for us for hundreds and hundreds of years, that we would read them, that we would meditate <coughs> upon them, that we would learn from them. So, Father, we ask, Lord, for your assistance in being able to do so profitably, that we may become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us. Thank you for allowing us to come and gather here this morning. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 17, right after Jesus was baptized and after the temptation in the wilderness. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So first of all, the... Ministry and message of Jesus closely resembles that of John the baptizer. Both were preachers who were calling sinners to repent because God's kingdom had come. And so we come to this portion here where he begins to talk about him calling these men to be his disciples. Simon and Andrew were commercial fishermen, and Jesus sees them and he commands them to follow him. So Matthew gives us an abbreviated version of the story. So turn, if you would, to Luke 5, just so we can kind of get more context 
uh, to what is being said here because this isn't like Jesus just showed up and Simon um, and his brother had no idea who Jesus was and he just gives the command and they follow. Uh, there's been some interaction and this story is a lot more involved than what appears here in the wording of Matthew. So in Luke 5, beginning in verse 1, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they have brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So that's the whole story of what took place. Fishing nets were you, that were used there most likely were what's called trammel nets. So I'm not sure how this works, it's just, but there's three layers of nets that you lay down. And basically each of the, the mesh in each layer gets smaller and smaller. And so the fish basically swim through, and as they swim through the bigger ones, um, you know, they, some will get caught in the next mesh and some will get caught in the next mesh, but that's how they would, they would catch the fish. And they would always fish at night. And the reason for that is because those nets were visible in the daytime uh, and the fish would simply avoid it. Uh, so the fishermen were on shore and they're washing their nets. So this incident takes place pretty early in the morning. Some say it may even be 7 a.m. So there's already a crowd that's around Jesus so they're all early risers. Um, and uh, Jesus is there. And what Jesus does when he begins to teach them is that was not an unusual activity. In Israel at that time, it was common for rabbis to take any and every opportunity to teach, no matter where it was. They would just impromptu, boom. Uh, this is a good place. The people are kind of milling around. Let's start teaching. And so this is what Jesus does. So this is not... Uh, some unusual thing where Jesus has this kind of magical power and what no people are following him they he's like a rabbi to them they want to hear what he has to say so there's a good a good group of them already there and so him to begin teaching at seven o'clock in the morning was again not an unusual thing they would have been used to that type of thing taking place so Jesus gets in the boat he, he pushes him out a little bit you know he gets a little bit away from the shore and begins to speak and you know, you can read in books and articles how, you know, what Jesus was doing was taking advantage of the terrain and his voice would have basically bounced off the water and the people would have been able to hear him. And, you know, so as he projected, they all would have heard him and all that was probably true. Uh, but when he does, when he teaches there, there's no indication anyone can't hear him. But when he finishes teaching, he then turns to Simon, who's there in the boat, and basically tells him to go and put the nuts down and catch some fish. So Simon gets an attitude. He's a fisherman. Jesus is a rabbi. So there's a lot of fishermen in our church. 
You'll never hear me telling them what they need to do when it comes to fishing. I have no clue. All right, and if whatever I would say, they would probably begin to laugh at me. Uh, so I just would keep my mouth quiet. So Jesus, this rabbi, now tells this commercial fisherman who's done this his entire life, you need to go in this daytime, put your nets down. Remember, the fish go to the bottom in the daytime, they can see the nets, you're not going to catch anything. So basically Simon says, Master, we've toiled all night and we've taken nothing, but at your word, we'll, that's what he's doing, we'll do it. There's no reason for him to do it, but we'll do it. Well, you saw the story. Not only did they catch, not only did they fill the nets, they filled up two boats, and the boats were so full, they started to sink. So this event, it's difficult for us to imagine this, because it's not going to hit us emotionally like it's going to hit these individuals. But they are stunned. They are stunned, not only that they caught some fish, but there's so much, that these are not, I mean, they're, they're not commercial-sized boats that we think of, but these are boats that are pretty hard to lower them in the water. So there's an enormous amount of weight in these boats from this catch of fish. So it's clearly a miracle that's taken place. This is whoever, this, this Jesus, when he said this, he's not some, you know, he doesn't have his own show fishing with Jesus, and he has all of these secrets, all right? That's not what he does. He somehow has control over what's going on and has made this happen. And so they are all attributing this to him, which, which would be a correct thing for them to do. And so Peter recognizes, I guess in a sense obviously, but he recognizes the uniqueness of Jesus the Messiah. And as he recognizes Jesus for who he is, he is very much aware of his own inadequacies. He is feeling filthy. Similar to when Isaiah uh, is presented with the vision of the Lord. Remember that he says, I'm a man of filthy lips, and he's just he's blown away, and the angel has to take a, a hot coal and put it on his mouth, and all this because he's just totally aware of his own sinfulness, his own inadequacies. This is Peter. Peter is very much aware of this. And so, and we know we do this on a regular basis. When we compare ourselves, we normally compare ourselves to other people. And a lot of times, we're pretty good at picking out other people that we're better than. Right? We, we pick them out, and we kind of feel good about ourselves. You don't have to say anything. It may just be a fleeting thought, but we know we, we, we do this. That's who we, you know, I'm not so bad. I mean, I know I miss church, but not like so-and-so. You know, I mean, I don't read my Bible every day, but so-and-so, I don't think they ever read their Bible. I mean, it's always something like that, where we just kind of have those comparisons. I've told you before, it happens in the jail all the time. A guy's been arrested for breaking the law. And I've even had guys tell me that they don't sin because they're not there for selling drugs to children. That would be sinful. I, I didn't do that. I only sold drugs to adults who knowingly purchased these items from me. And that's how they view it. And of course, the individual who may have sold drugs to, to underage uh, minors are thinking, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm not molesting anybody. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've done wrong. Maybe I'm a bad influence, but I've not sinned. And they, they truly view themselves that way. They truly think that about themselves. And then it kind of goes on down the order. And then when you get down to the lowest of the low, they put them in protective custody. So those who are normally in there for molesting children or whatever, they have to put them somewhere else because other inmates will beat them. And part of the, what drives them is you feel morally superior. 
That is filth. I'm not. I am now a wedge or a hammer of righteousness, and I'm going to you know, take it out. That's kind of the, the thought process that's going on. So Peter here is instantly aware of his own inadequacies. This happens, and this instant awareness is not an unusual thing. Um, it's easier for me to illustrate this with, with the way guys are, but if, you know, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, I, I would, you know, ride my bike down to the park, and I would, you know, there would be always a pickup basketball game, and I'd always play. I, I, was, I was never under the illusion that I was a great player. I enjoyed it, had fun. But there were times when certain individuals would walk on the court, and you immediately knew, yeah, this guy can play. I am not in the same league as this guy. I want to be on his team. <laughs> I, we can win, we can keep playing, and I don't have to guard him. Uh, you know, that kind of I want to be embarrassed by the individual. But you can immediately sense it. When you meet someone who, let's say, is more intelligent than you are, you normally immediately can sense that. And what you are feeling is not just that they are smarter, but you're feeling your own inadequacies in whatever way. It's not always a bad thing, but you immediately sense it. So this... What's going on here with Peter, he immediately is aware of this. So it's, it seems kind of unusual if, if in, in one sense that just because this guy can help you catch an enormous amount of fish that you now are aware of your own sinfulness. But you see, it wasn't just the fish. What does it take to make that happen? And in his mind, yeah, this guy is unique and special. He, he's close to God or he is God. I don't know how much Peter knew at that moment, but he knew that Jesus was, was probably the Messiah and so he was, and so that's why he says what he says. So what we need to make sure we always have is a proper perspective. And that's why we then should compare ourselves to Jesus and not just to other individuals. So in this case, what's going on is the comparison of, that Peter's making is with the absolute standard, the God-man, the Messiah Jesus. You compare, if you and I compare ourselves to Jesus, our conclusions must be the same as Peter's. We are sinful. And so that's why Peter's so aware, he says, leave me. Just get away from me. He doesn't want to be in his presence. He's not saying that out of disrespect. He's saying that out of immense respect. I am filth. You are righteousness. There needs to be a separation. Get away from me. I, I am unworthy. Can't stand to be in your presence because of my dirt. And Jesus says... Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus' response to Peter's confession is not, you know what, you're right. I am way above you. But I'm not leaving, you leave. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't walk away. This is really important for us to, to see here how Jesus responds to Peter. He calls Peter to follow him, to leave what he's doing and follow him. Now we'll get into some real detail as to what that means in just a minute, because it's really very important. But he was calling Peter to full-time discipleship. And we know from what we read in Matthew and both Luke that, that these men, including Peter, they just leave the fishing business and they follow Jesus. So when Jesus tells him to follow him, again, during that time, a rabbi or maybe a traveling teacher would have a group of disciples to ask an individual to follow them or to be asked if they could follow you was not an unusual thing. Jesus wasn't the only guy doing this kind of thing. There were other men who would have uh, basically disciples and they would follow them wherever they would go. So you're calling them to a full-time discipleship. 
That meant trusting the leader, in this case it would be trusting Jesus, to provide for their needs because they're leaving their main source of income. They're leaving that behind and they're basically putting their, their, their lives in the hands of this man they're now going to follow. So this idea of discipleship, because the church picks up on that in the Bible about discipleship, the key word or the way you would sum that up is the word imitation. And it's really important for this reason. To be a disciple back during the days of Jesus when he was on earth meant you were following a rabbi or a teacher. And the goal of discipleship was not merely to master the rabbi's teachings. Instead, it was to master their way of life, how he prayed, how he studied, how he taught, how he served the poor, how he lived out his relationship with God day to day. That's what that's a call to. That's what discipleship is. Jesus himself said that. When a disciple is fully trained, he becomes what? Like his teacher. He doesn't say he knows as much as his teacher. He becomes like his teacher. When Paul formed disciples, he exhorted them not just to remember his teachings, but what? To follow his way of living. That's why he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In fact, I point out often that Paul never wanted people to follow him in the way that we think of following a person. He said, imitate me. The idea is, is imitate my life. Be aware of how I live my life. If you imitate the way I live, you will then be close to God. It's quite a thing to say to an individual. But that's what he's saying. Now the Greek word in the New Testament that's used for disciple is uh, mathetus, which means learner. Now the problem with that is that for many, many, many years, when books were written on discipleship in the church, they would emphasize this word, which isn't bad, but they almost emphasized that word only. So discipleship became only a passing on of information. We need to teach them about what Jesus said, teach them about the life of Jesus, teach them doctrine. Now, all that's true, but discipleship became merely that. So we were missing a huge element uh, of what discipleship was supposed to be, and I believe that the church as a whole became weaker because of that. We may have had knowledge, but we were much weaker morally. We were much weaker in our convictions. We were much weaker in our faith, even, in living out our faith as believers. So again, discipleship is very different than the idea of just learning something in a classroom. It's not a relationship like you might have with a university professor who delivers lectures in a large hall or what have you, and then you get tested. This if you know them, and then boom, you can go your way. Maybe every now and then a student may ask for guidance or seek more guidance or have a question, but for the most part, professors normally don't share life together in an ongoing community of fellowship and learning outside of the classroom. That normally doesn't happen. Now, I do know in reading... Uh, the biographies of C.S. Lewis and some of those guys that when they went to Oxford or Cambridge, they, in some of those, those types of institutions of higher learning, if you were pursuing a Ph.D. Uh, in certain areas, they, they had very small groups of students uh, that would be learning from a professor, like six or seven. So you would, your classroom instruction would be in, in their office or in their study. And the idea was they would spend time with the individual. It wasn't just going through it was interacting. The, the professor uh, and the student would interact with each other on a great deal over the things they were reading and studying and talking about. 
And so then you would really learn about this individual and the way he thought, uh, as well as the way he taught and what he was teaching and that kind of thing. So here, the idea that's in the mind of Jesus when he tells Peter to follow him is the way that you would learn from a rabbi. And so in one of the books, there's several books that have this, but one of the books I was reading, uh, the, the author says this, to follow a rabbi meant living with the rabbi, sharing life with him, and taking part in the rabbi's whole way of life. A disciple might accompany a rabbi on all his daily routines, prayer, study, debating other rabbis, giving alms to the poor, burying the dead, going to court, everything. A rabbi's life was meant to be a living example of someone shaped by God's word. Discipleship, therefore, studied not just the text of scripture, but also the text of the rabbi's life. So if you think about that for a minute, that's what parenting should be. When we parent our children, we are sharing daily life with our children. And what is it we want them to see? We want them to see all of our life. Not just when we wash the dishes, not just when we do our chores, not just when we go to work, but all of it. How we interact with each other. Now again, when, we, when you think about this, remember, on no occasion am I thinking that we're supposed to live this perfect life so they can emulate us. In, that's not the idea. They're going to see all of the weaknesses and mistakes along the way, but also how we live with those things and how we handle those things. They need to see that. Remember, the application of the Word of God is not only that you are somehow reaching moral perfection. Submitting yourself to the Word of God is the way we respond when we blow it, as well as how we respond when someone else blows it. When, when our children become aware that someone has betrayed us, they need to see how we handle that. When we have disagreement with someone, they need to see how we handle that. When we sin, they need to see how we handle that. When it comes to life in the church, when it comes to discipleship, discipleship is not just sitting down and imparting knowledge. That is part of it. But it's not that. Because if it only is that, that eliminates many people from being involved in discipleship. Because we have all these built-in excuses. Well, I don't know enough. I don't know if I can really share. What would I share with them? I don't know that much doctrine. You know, just all these things. No, you're sharing your life with them. Even if you think you only know a little bit about the Word of God, that's okay. We need to do things together. So, give an example of that. So we're, um, now I'm not doing this to sell tickets. But you know, uh, um, Tom made an announcement next, last week that if you're interested in going to the Ghost Pirates hockey game, make sure you sign up. Now why are we doing that? Now we're doing it because it's, it's fun, which it is. But why is a church doing that? Well, we're just looking, A, we can get a discount, I think. If we don't, then whatever. But the idea is, is that we just do stuff together. So we can see each other outside of this sanctuary. So it's intentional that we as Christians are going to this game together, to be together, to cheer on this team and eat junk food. And to see how we, how we live that out. To see how we respond. And, and so, I mean, if you come to my, if you, you may even come to my house to watch a football game. You'll be able to tell by my intensity if I really care about the outcome of the game. And you'll be able to tell by, when I say my language, I, I don't cuss. Uh, so you're not going to see that. All right? But, you know, you, I may, you may hear me start to, to mock the referees or mock the, the, the coach or mock a player. 
if it's with my favorite team, the Bears, you hear me mocking them a great deal. Um, because right now they're a dumpster fire. But the idea is, is that we live life together and as we interact, we do need to see each other living. This is how Christians do this. This is how we handle when our team isn't doing good. You can still be upset, but your life isn't over. You're not throwing dishes because your team is just lost and now they're not going to win the national championship. We're not reacting that way. And so all these things that we do together, when we have our oyster roast, when we have our times of fellowship afterwards, all those things are, are not just because, oh, I have to eat together because we're Baptists, but the idea is so we can just spend more time together, getting to know each other, and becoming, in a sense, more comfortable with each other. That's why it's important for us to be hospitable and have each other over for dinner at our house. It's not just so they can inspect your home. Right? Hopefully they're not doing that, and they're not going to grade you on cleanliness, though sometimes we can't help but notice. But the bottom line, of course, you know how it happens. Sometimes, well, you can tell they cleaned the house before we got there, because nobody lives that clean. But anyway, the idea is, is that we share life together, and that's, that's what Christians, that's what it, it, it's about. And that's what we want to do with new believers. That's how new believers grow fast. It's not just learning and drilling into them the doctrines of the Bible. That's part of it, absolutely. But it's being together. And that's what this is about. This discipleship that Jesus is calling to is this. So Jesus didn't just invite Simon Peter to, uh, to listen to his preaching in the synagogues. No, he said, come and follow me. He invited, this is what one guy wrote. I wouldn't say it this way, but he did. He said that Jesus was inviting Simon and these other men on a three-year camping trip, traveling from village to village throughout Galilee as he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So think about that for a minute. Living with Jesus physically, day in and day out for three years. How much his disciples have been influenced by his example. They would notice the way he woke up and that he woke up early to pray. They would witness his compassion towards others. They would be moved by his urgent need to go out and touch sinners and outcasts. They would see miracles of healing and the resurrection. They'd also witness how he taught the crowds, how he debated opponents, called people to repentance, and offered them his mercy. Much of Jesus' way of living would have rubbed off on his disciples. What we sometimes see as we study the scriptures, you'll notice in Jesus' interaction with people that, that there are times when he was really hard and he, was, he would scold them. But if you keep looking at it and making comparisons, you realize, you know, he only did that with religious teachers. He was hard on them. Man, he would scold them. He would sometimes mock them. I mean, he, he would correct them harshly. When it came to what we would call the everyday person, he's kind, gentle, very patient with them. You see that difference in how he handles people. You see his wisdom. You see how he confronts people. Remember, there's that lady that's caught in adultery. The way that when you read the scripture, you find out that she was actually caught in the very act of adultery. A lot of people would just say, yeah, what, what trash. You know, we, we would feel righteous because compared to her, we are righteous in that way. And it would be so easy to condemn that individual, to separate ourselves from that, from that person physically and morally. Yeah, I'm not like her. I disavow everything that person does. Where we end up disavowing that person. And of course we know the, the famous story where Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They all leave. Jesus is there alone with the woman. And basically he kind of helps her up. He says, where, where are your accusers? 
or they were gone. She knew why they were gone. Jesus didn't say, it's okay. No, what he said was, go and sin no more. He still confronted with her sin. A, it was in private. Everybody else was gone. But it's a very kind, gentle assurance that he gives her. But it's clear as to what he wants her to do. But still, that's how he dealt with her. The disciples would have learned that from seeing him interact with people. And so that's what being a disciple is all about. The ancient Jews had a saying. It kind of captures the idea of discipleship and this transformation. They said, if you find a good rabbi, you should cover yourself in the dust of his feet and drink in his words in a thirsty way. So the book I was reading, the, the one author said this. He says, this expression probably draws on a well-known site for ancient Jews. Disciples were known for walking right behind the rabbi, following him so closely that they would become covered in the dust that kicked up from his sandals. And that's the image that, that is in our minds when Jesus tells his disciples to follow him. That's what should ta- take place in the life of the individual spiritually. The disciples were expected to follow the rabbi or to follow Jesus so closely that they would be covered with their master's whole way of thinking and living and acting. And so all of us are called to disciple others. Every single one of us. It is impossible for just one man, the pastor, or for just some men, the elders, to do that. They should be doing that, absolutely. The whole church is called to do that. In the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go therefore and preach to all nations, teaching them the commands, the thing that's interesting is that he says, teaching them to obey. And what I find so significant about that phrasing is he doesn't say, teach them the commandments. He says, teach them to obey the commandments. How do you do that? Well, it's done two ways. It's by teaching the commands, and you are saying we should do them, but you're also living it out yourself. So you're teaching them, by your example as well, how to obey the commands of God. That isn't just me just speaking to you. So, for example, if you have corrected your children because they have sassed their mother or they have sassed each other, and you correct them, correct rightly so, and then you're sassing your wife, yeah, that's not a good picture. Right, that's when you need to go to your kids and say, you know, I, I really blew it the other day. I was, I was talking rudely to your mother, and that was sinful. And I need you to forgive me because I know you saw that I was a bad example to you as well as to your mother, and I sinned against God. They need to see, they need to hear that. It's important. All right, so... This is the idea that, that's in, embedded in this whole thing. So again, we're called to do the same. We, we, you know, we walk on paved roads and sidewalks mostly, so no one's going to get dusty. But again, we are called to follow Jesus in this way so that we are covered by the dust of his life, so we're changed and made new. And these are the kind of disciples that Jesus is looking for, but we're also called to imitate him. And so this is how we are to approach life. Again, whether it's our children or those around us that God has placed in our life. We want this kind of interaction going on. That's why we want to engage what we call church fellowship, why it's always more than just eating together, though that's an important part of it and a fun part of it, but that's not all of it. All right, just like with your family, you don't just eat together and then never speak to each other again. You, you do things together. 
So I want us to kind of have this maybe more of a robust idea of discipleship. So when Jesus calls Peter, in one sense, you can look at it this way. Jesus is basically saying, Peter, everything in your life is wrong. You need to follow me. You don't know how to live all over again. Now, we're not always telling someone that everything in life is wrong. But you do know we're all born with a sin nature. We're all born with a natural bent to do wrong. It's easy and natural for us to be rude to others or maybe to, to pass judgment on them. Even if we keep it to ourselves, we're still doing that. And we may treat them a little differently. It's natural for us to kind of ignore certain people. It's natural for us to, to maybe show prejudice, to, be, to be treat one certain individual better than another for whatever the reason. So we need to live differently, to live the way that Christ would have us to live. And Christ wants us then to live that in front of others. That's the idea of pouring your life into another person. You don't have to have a special plan. Let them just kind of do things with you and your family. It's, it's important. It's hard. We live in a culture that that is just not really a thing. In, in too many cases, it's just not a thing. You know, the house isn't clean enough. And I don't know if I have time for someone. Like, we have to entertain people when they come over. So just drop the entertainment thing. Now, if, if someone gets upset because you're not entertaining them, then that's on them. Because right, that's not the point. Right, so if I, so if I, when I invite guys over to my house uh, to watch football, I may mean, I may have some snacks, I ain't cooking nothing. Because I'm inviting you to, to watch the game. I'm watching the game. I want, I'm gonna watch, you, want, you want to go in my kitchen and cook? You go ahead. But we're watching the game. But, and we're going to do all this together. We're going to have a good time. Right, but that's the whole point with all of that. Is I'm not going to entertain you. Right, I'm not, you know, not going to walk you to the restroom and say, well, here it is. It's down the hall. Go left. You know, shut the door, you know, kind of, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So, so that's the idea. So just relax. Realize that, A, if you, if you have people over, they may, they may in their minds judge your house as being too clean or not clean enough or whatever. It just doesn't really matter. It's not important. The person is we want that person to know that we care for them and love them, and we, we want to get to know them better. And we do want this, and think of it this way, I want them to see my imperfect Christian life, okay? Because we're not, we're not on display trying to portray an image of a Christian. You are a Christian, right? You are one. If you have, if you have a high income or low income, it doesn't matter. Have people over. Be friends with people. Let them know. This is how someone has a high income lives and thinks. If you have low income, this is how an individual with low income thinks and lives. There's no shame in that. They need to see that. They need to see the difference. You know, this isn't where we want to portray all Christians as being high middle income families. Man, we're all over the place. And then also, as you just share life with them, sometimes you share a little bit about your past life, and maybe you share with them some of the mess that your life has been, which then should give glory to God because they're like, wow, you know, you're, the way you live now, you and your wife get along, and you're not yelling at your kids, and you know, you're, just, you're, just, you're just comfortable to be around. Why is that? Well, it's because Christ has changed me. Or, or not only has Christ changed me, you, you can talk to them about how somebody was in your life and how you saw how they lived the Christian life, and you learned some things from that. So we're all on this, in, I hate the word journey sometimes because it can be all kind of weird stuff in the church, but we are all on a journey together to be more like Christ, to serve him until he comes again, to grow to maturity, to encourage each other, to help each other along the way because we all need help along the way. 
There are times that some of us are going to stumble. Some, some of us are going to fall all the way to the ground. And we need others to pick us up. And, and that's how we do that, is by, by being together. So remember this. And when Jesus called Simon the call to, 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 to follow him, he was saying, Simon, you need to follow me so closely that the dust from my sandals cover, cover you with my dust. And what that means. And how that is the example and definition of discipleship. And what we are called to be engaged in as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness. And again for uh, the, the great patience of Jesus. And really for his style. We thank you, Father, for what he did in the lives of the apostles. Obviously, Father, the apostles have laid the foundation for everything that we believe and all that we are and what we know as, as Christians. And so these men were greatly influenced by Jesus, and we, we thank you for that. And we see, Father, how that was accomplished in really a short period of time. Father, I pray that you would help us because it is hard. It, it can be uncomfortable, Father. We're not used to, at times, letting someone else into our life. I, I pray, Lord that people will not think that it can only be a certain way, that, that it's, it, it can be done by having people over. It can be done by meeting each other and doing something together. There's, there's not one way that it looks, except that we spend time together. So Father, I pray that you would help us with that, because I know that the evil one wants to keep us separated. And Father, for those who may not know Christ, it may be through, really, discipleship that somebody sees the living Christ lived out before them. And it is through that that they are convicted by your spirit of their sin and their separation from God. Because they are recognized that in our imperfect lives there is great joy and peace. And it contrasts with their life, which on one hand might even be a little better than ours by their estimation, and yet their life is empty compared to ours. Father, I pray they would see that. Not, Lord, that we would think better of ourselves, but they would see, Father, their need of Christ and that our life is the way it is because of Christ. The same thing is offered to them. Father, we thank you again for how you've blessed our lives, for the people you've used in our lives to mold and to shape us. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we've not paid enough attention to others. And we pray, Lord, that even though our efforts will probably be very feeble and be very imperfect in many ways and probably inconsistent as well. Father, if all of us are doing that, I believe that out of that mess, there'll be some fabric of consistency. There will be the message of Christ, that Christ has come to save sinners, of which we all are chief in that sense, and that you have redeemed us and you have transformed us by your Son. As always, we thank you so much, Father. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.